place it comfortably. Um, before I begin this talk, um, Diana was just mentioning to me during the break that um, during the working period, um, people out there in the rain just going about their business, doing whatever they were doing, didn't have to come in just because it was raining. And um, just not making any fuss, just doing what needs to be done. And I don't want to make a fuss about the fact that you were working like that, but I want to express my sense of appreciation for the spirit of, of work that's done in that manner. Just no fuss, not making a drama out of the fact that it's raining, just going about doing what needs to be done. That's the, that's the spirit of, of Zen practice. The title of this talk is The Counterculture of Zen, and if we had a subheading, Living in Reality. The word counterculture came out, to remind you, in the 1960s, and uh, it was a word um, which started to have a kind of uh, negative connotation to it, as though it was associated in, with anything that was kind of dippy hippy in its um, outlook and, uh, and a bit silly, a bit airy fairy. Um, but I think it's actually a very good word, and I'd like to to uh, use the word um, as a way of looking at how we practice within the culture that surrounds us. And uh, in the, as I mentioned in the uh, first talk I gave, is that we kind of live in a crazy world, but the world's always been crazy. Um, it's just that we hear perhaps more about of its craziness through the news and so on, and it gets sort of amplified, but it's always been crazy. Samsara existed in the Buddha's day, it does in this day, but it seems to take on a very special kind of um, style these days. And many, many different um, sociologists, psychologists, etc., have um, made a, a recognition or a description of the style of living in our Western democratic countries as being a rather narcissistic style. And you've heard me talk about that before too. And it's sort of characterised by... Um, you know, generations ago, the idea of a life was to, there was a focus on, on developing, not necessarily being successful, but of being of good character. That has had more importance. Now, being successful seems to be more important than, than cultivating good character. And in other aspects of life, just in work but in play, um, Play doesn't seem to be play anymore a lot of the time, particularly like in sport and organised sports about winning and losing and you've got to win. You know? um, but the, the sense of play in its true sense of world, it world, in the true sense of the word, of what children do, there's no winners, losers, it's just an unstructured, loose, easy, improvised way of being. But we, we seem to have lost that because we're so preoccupied with outcomes and with winning and looking good and feeling good. And it's also driven by um, celebrity culture, um, 
and their followers, you know, people wanting to be like celebrities, people following the everyday lives of celebrities and not knowing much about the person next door. Mm -hmm. um, social media, um, the need to feel good all the time is a kind of expectation that that's, that's the ocean that we swim in. That's the culture that we're in. And uh, narcissism is another, it's a fancy psychological word for being self-centred, self-preoccupied. And so Zen practice has always been um, a kind of counterculture. All Dharma practice has always been a counterculture to that more self-centred way that the world works. And quite frankly, it's never been that popular. Mm -hmm. um, people think, for instance, people may idealise that, say, in Japan, you know, which is a you know, culture influenced by Zen and a Buddhist culture that, you know, it's a big Zen happening over there. It's not like that at all. It never really was. People I know who have their finger on the pulse of Japanese culture know a lot more about it than me. I mean, that in the, in the census, 1% um, of people identify as being Zen Buddhist. You know? And of that 1%, only a very small percentage practice. Um, so it's never actually been that popular. But that, that's beside the point. We're not, we're not evangelists, so that doesn't matter. It's not a matter of a popularity contest. Um, and so the, the counterculture of Zen, as we recite in our practice principles over and over again, is to move from a self-centred way of being in the world and acting in the world to what is more what Joko referred to as a life-centred way of being in the world. Now she deliberately used the word life-centred rather than using the opposite of um, other-centred, because mm -hmm. that just creates a division, you know, and, and it can bring all that sense of having to do good for others and deny yourself, da 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 da, da which can lead to mental illness. Um, so life-centred means like an inclusion of everything. It's holistic. It's self and other. You know, it's it's about having a holistic view of the way that you see things, rather than this narrow "what's in it for me" kind of approach. Um, and that is the shift that all of us are working towards in doing session, doing sadhana each day, living our lives. And um, you may be like me in this regard, but I have a um, quite a visceral distaste for evangelism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would never want Zen practice to be evangelistic in any kind of way. And uh, like the um, American writer Thoreau, you know, who lived by himself, he said whenever he saw someone coming to doing good, he went away and hid, <laughs> ran away, hide. <laughs> uh, I feel like doing the same. But nevertheless, um, our, our life in the world, um, if, if we do practice, hopefully, and most likely it unconsciously does affect others um, in some way. If we happen to be 
a non-reactive person in the midst of reactivity. If we're someone who's got our eye on what's good for the whole rather than what's good for me. And the spirit of this um, way of being in the world uh, is the bodhisattva spirit, which then is a bodhisattva tradition. It's not just working towards your own awakening, but a, the, the awakening of all beings. Mm -hmm. But there's a koan around this, which is an interesting koan. And a monk asked the teacher, how is it that the bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, can use all those many eyes and arms at once? Do you know Avalokiteshvara? She's got many eyes, many arms, do you know? And they're all there to help. All those many arms and legs and eyes are to help all the people in the world. So how can she use them all at once? Mm -hmm. And the teacher said, oh, it's like reaching for a pillow in the night. Mm -hmm. What's he referring to there? It's just something that happens naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's something that happens unconsciously. To go back to our um, talk yesterday, I think it was about intentionally trying to be in the, in the way, in the Tao. As soon as you consciously, intentionally try to do it, you're not in the way. You're not in the Tao. But if it's just, if your practice is just doing what you need to do to come back to equanimity and be, come back to present moment experience, then the Bodhisattva work will look after itself. Robert Aitken, um, one of my, my important teachers, wrote a book called The Mind of Clover. And what he meant in the essay on The Mind of Clover is that when clover dies, it just goes back into the ground and it's very high in nitrogen and it just nourishes the other plants around it. But it doesn't mean to. It's got no intention to. It just does it. Mm -hmm. And so it nurtures everything around it without any conscious intent. Mm -hmm. And um, that is the spirit in which we practice when we go back into everyday life, work, families, etc. Um, Coral mentioned something to me the other day, and I think you won't mind me talking about it because it's in the public sphere, not the personal sphere. But as you may know, um, Coral runs a mindfulness group where she lives up in Queensland in the apartment, content, um, apartment building where there's several different units and so on. And they meet once a week and do mindfulness practice together. And there's about 10 or 11, 13, 13 people now. And what um, Coral was saying to me the other day that she's noticed ever since um, this group has been going for a while, even though there's only about 13 people, that as, as a social experiment, she's found that there's actually, even the people who don't come to the group, there's some kind of cultural shift in the apartment and people are being kinder to one another, you know, and, and looking out for one another and uh, interested in one another and working more as a community. And maybe that's what happens, even if you have one, one coral and a mindfulness group in an apartment block, it unconsciously just influences what it's there. You're not trying to make it happen, you're just doing what you're doing and 
and, and some kind of transformation occurs, like a catalyst. So it would be good if we could put a coral in a mindfulness group in all the apartment buildings <laughs> in, in Sydney. might have a different atmosphere. But let's look at the way a self-centred view of the world um, distorts our sense of reality. And this is a reality-based practice. It's not very fairy It's coming back to what is really happening right now in the present moment. That is reality-based. And all of our focus is about coming back to that all the time. But when we're caught in a self-centred perspective, um, we distort reality in various different ways. Now, there's many different psychological theories about how we do that, like Freud's defence mechanisms of projection and denial, etc. Um, and and, and uh, CBT therapy talks about different cognitive distortions. But to make it very, very simple in a, in a Dharma context, there's two kind of opposite ways in which we distort what is really happening. And that is by exaggerating what is happening, and the other is by denying what is happening. They're the two polarities. Mm -hmm. And when we exaggerate, um, we're in a kind of hyped, excited, hysterical even mode that distorts it. And often when we're in denial, it's kind of like it's the opposite feeling. It's kind of like flat, dull, indifferent, lifeless, no energy. Mm -hmm. And um, we're often told to um, trust our feelings these days. But I would actually suggest to you that if you're in a hysterical, exaggerated state of mind, don't trust it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you're in the opposite, if you're an indifferent, flat, you know, lifeless, lacking, don't trust that either. Don't trust either of them. Mm -hmm. Don't trust your feelings when they're like that, or the lack of them. Um, but alternatively, if you sense, and you can sense within yourself, that what you're experiencing is a place of equanimity, and equanimity is being accurate um, at one with the way you're experiencing this moment right now, well, trust that. Mm -hmm. The other extremes, I'm not so sure. You get into a lot of trouble. So they're the ways in which we distort it. And one of the distortions of reality too, it's not just a matter of coming into the moment as it is. But this is basic Buddhist teaching and basic Zen teaching and it's, it's verifiable really through your own experience. It's not some hidden insight. When you really come into the present moment and you be with it just as it is, nothing no thing exists as a separate entity in itself. Nothing does. Mm -hmm. but, that's, but that's the delusion, that's the delusion that we live in all the time, that I'm separate from everything else. Do you know, or the paper is, do you know, or the floorboards, do you know, they're, they're, they're discrete entities in themselves. But a moment's reflection and looking around um, demonstrates to you otherwise. 
Everything is connected to everything else. Everything's in an ecological relationship with everything else. As um, Thich Nhat Hanh says very, very um, clearly, each, each self, you know, each thing, is made up of non-self or non-thing elements. All the chemicals in your body, all the ideas that got there, you know, um, everything, the water, the food, everything is connected with everything else. And that's the, re that's the reality that we come back to as well, if we really look um, and see clearly what's in our experience. It's this narrowing down to um, self-centeredness, uh, narrowing it down to that. And then as we act in the world, or we be in the world, we act that out in the world in terms of um, this is me, uh, these are my possessions, this is my space, this is mine, mm -hmm. or this is not mine. But all of that starts to dissolve the more you go into Zen practice and the more you realise the experience of emptiness. Emptiness is not a thing. Emptiness is the absence of separateness. That's all it is. Everything empty of separateness. It's the negative way of saying into being. Same thing. No mystery. Um, in terms of the way self-centeredness plays itself out too in our modern age, um, there are certain distortions that occur too that are kind of um, part of modern psychology as well, or sort of psychological frame often in which we look at things. And in looking at this and looking at the Zen perspective, um, I'm uh, drawing on the work of um, Greg Kretsch, who I've mentioned some time before, who write, wrote a book called Nikan Therapy, which is based on Japanese psychology, which is based on Zen and Buddhist ways of looking at the world. And uh, it's a very... Um, I find it a very clear, refreshing way of starting to try to counter some of the distortions um, that come through in the way that we're um, expected to live our lives or experience our lives in, in interpersonal relationships. But one of those biases is that so much, as Greg points out, um, is that one of those biases is that there's so much focus on feelings these days. If you feel something, it must be true. Mm -hmm. And what a Zen practice does, along like with the Nikon practice, there's not so much a focus on feelings, it's not denying the experience of them, but it's a focus on facts. You know, on facts. Let me give you some examples. Say you're as a child and you get um, hand-me-down clothes from your big brother or your big sister and then 
you're upset about it because they're not in your clothes and you grow up with a kind of sense of unfairness that it wasn't fair that you got handed down clothes. Well, is it really the feelings that are that important or is it the fact that you were given clothes? The fact is you were given clothes. Mm -hmm. From a Zen perspective, that's the important thing. Okay, you might have feelings about it, okay, that's, that may come up, that might arise. But that's the central thing. You were given clothes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's so much preoccupation with, with self-centred feeling these days and it can get reinforced more and more and more. But we should balance it with this fact of actually being accurate about what actually occurs in our life. One of the other distortions which comes from a self-centred perspective is um, a preoccupation um, with how we've been hurt by other people in our life or how we've been mistreated by other people in our life. And I've used this expression before, but it's like all of us could write a PhD thesis on how we've been hurt by others or mistreated by others. It's like we we hold it there, you know, and, and we ruminate on it and we go over it and over it and over it and become, it becomes a huge distortion in terms of what actually happens in our life. Yes, there's probably no denial that, that mistreatment and hurt has, a, has been happening to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, after all, we live in an imperfect world, in imperfect relationship with people who do things out of self-centred reason. So hurt, you know, and, and um, woundedness is going to occur. Um, but what about how we hurt others? How much does that, how much do we actually reflect on that? How much does that come into the picture? How much does it balance things up? Mm -hmm. How often have we mistreated others? It's like we've got, it's kind of like we've got a blind spot in looking at all of that. Um, so if our practice again is to come back to the reality of the way things are and, and be committed to as accurate a picture of our self-image and who we are, then surely it requires looking at that, not just this distortion of what's come to me from others all the time. <clears throat> Often what's occurring from a self-centred point of view too is that we want constant validation um, about our own view or our own way of looking at things. And um, reassurance, validation that what we're experiencing is, is okay or it's right. Um, that again can have a certain value, but it's distorted, it's like it's polarised. And a Zen perspective is about getting us to understand not just our own perspective on things, but the other's perspective. Trying to understand the perspective of others, the experience of others. Um, another pattern which is very strong in our modern life 
and you see it in public life so much as well as in, in private life, is this knee-jerk reaction to blame others. You know, the outward blame, someone else must be to blame if my life is not going the way that I'd like it to be. And it's quite, quite, um, um, it's quite an epidemic of it, really. It's just like a knee-jerk reaction. You know, something's wrong, someone must be to blame. Who can we find who's to blame for it? And alternatively, you know, it's actually quite refreshing when you come across a person in your own personal life or you see it in public life when someone um, genuinely recognises a mistake they've made and apologises for it, right? And it's like, wow, you know? And, and, it's, and it shouldn't be like, wow, you know? Um, if we're living in a world based on accurate view, we'd be doing it all the time. Uh -huh. But it's so, it's so kind of mind-blowing because it really happens. Uh -huh. um, and, and so there's a lot of focus on, in our modern world, about rights, you know, and people gaining rights in you know, various areas, politically or personally. But personal responsibility doesn't give them the same airtime. Mm -hmm. Again, they go together, it's not one or the other. But there's not a lot of focus you know, on actually taking personal responsibility for things that actually happen in our life. And these are all values and, and um, outcomes that are really central to Zen practice. Um, that's the actual transformation that's occurring in an everyday way, in an interpersonal way, family work way, um, in, in doing this practice more and more. So what goes on with blaming others is also judging others as well. Finally, another preoccupation in modern life is about um, self-esteem and um, needing to feel good about yourself all of the time. And Zen practice really, um, in my understanding of it, and it's similar in the Nikon therapy, we're not actually interested in self-esteem. That might seem a funny thing to say, but it, we're not actually that focused on it, which is not to mean that people don't feel good about themselves, but it's not about having to feel good about yourself all the time. And it's about... If we have a self-image, and we do, it's about basing it on what is actually accurate again coming back with a sense of equanimity to seeing what is really there. So if you actually are a generous person who gives a lot to the community and other people, then it's accurate. That's, that's what we are. Mm -hmm. um, if we recognise that we also, or we are at times hurt others, um, wound others, um, do things at other people's expense, then that's who we are as well. Mm -hmm. It's not about trying to live up to some shiny view of, of ourselves that we have to be all the time. And it comes through in, in education as well. Um, in places like Finland, which have, you know, objectively through world standards, have the highest education standards in the world, um, 
children aren't rewarded for just turning up. When, when they do something well, they're rewarded for it. In Australian schools and American schools, um, there's this tendency to build self-esteem. So as long as you just turn up, you get a reward. Right? You get rewarded before you actually achieve anything. Everyone's got to feel good. Going back to Alice in Wonderland again, you may remember in, in Alice in Wonderland, there's a saying in there, which was meant back in those days as being another crazy thing, um, that everyone is a winner and everyone deserves a prize. <laughs> but actually that's not the way it is in life really. Not everyone's a winner. And some people deserve a prize more than others because they're actually putting more effort into what they're doing. But this preoccupation with building self-esteem just doesn't seem to work. A lot of people in psychology too, believe me, who are questioning this whole concept. People like um, Kristen Neff, who is a um, Buddhist practitioner who brought self-compassion into um, psychological clinical work. And again, she challenges the whole issue of self-esteem. It's all in the realm of good and bad. Mm -hmm. Self-compassion is a very different thing. Self-compassion is not, um, I'm better than anyone else, I've got a higher status or anything. Self-compassion is just having care for the fact that I might be suffering. That's all, rather than being indifferent to it, you know, or critical. That's a very different matter altogether. But this drive to have to be feeling good all the time, being a winner, being successful, being on top, is what drives so much of our culture. In Zen we just cut through it. And what the alternative is, is instead of striving for self-esteem, or high self-esteem, what we work towards is an appreciation for life. That's all. If, you're, if your focus is on just appreciating life, and you're part of life, and you start to come into the moment and you start to see the holistic, interconnected nature of everything, then there is a sense of joy that arises out of that. But it's not self-centred joy. It's just a joy that arises out of being connected to everything and appreciating everything. Quite different. So as a way of um, uh, winding up this talk, um, I would like to invite you into doing a little bit of experiential work, which is bringing this uh, Nikan practice into, into experience a bit more. I think it really dovetails into Zen practice very well. And if you do a, a Nikan retreat, um, you spend like a week doing what we're doing, and you don't do structured sazen, but you're quiet. And there's three questions that you reflect on through the whole week. And those, those three questions are taking a particular person in your life, whoever that, might, whoever that might be. The first question is, what have I received from so-and-so? What have I received from this person? And then the second question is, what have I given to this person? And the third one is, the most important one, what troubles and difficulties have I caused this person? 
So as a way of doing this, I'd like to just invite you to take up a sitting position. And I'm going to, like we do with bowing practice, I'm going to introduce a theme into this. You don't have to follow the theme, but um, here's a theme. I want to focus on fathers. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to just sit in meditation. If you don't want to do fathers, you can do something else. But as a focus, just sit quietly for a moment. Just come back to the moment and your breath. And bring an image of your father to mind. Then just ask yourself the question internally. What have I received from my father? Just reflect on it, be with it, just see what arises in the mind. Then let that question go, just have a pause. And then ask yourself the question, what have I given to my father? And let that question drop away and just have a pause.
and then asking yourself the last question, what troubles and difficulties have I caused my father? Then letting that question go and just pausing. And just opening your eyes. So thank you everyone. And um, if there's anything that arises out of doing that little experience, feel free to um, bring that up with me in Dyson when you see me.